Well, good morning and welcome. And I'm sorry I didn't order any heat. It's really cold here, isn't it? It feels kind of cool, but you know what? That's totally fine. And, and I, you know what? I don't have to say good morning to our online people. But if you're watching on YouTube at a later date, good morning and welcome. Um, we're going to continue a series on the, on the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to kind of we're going to kind of go on an interesting trajectory this morning, and I always say that, but I don't know if people actually believe it, but maybe you will after we get there. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Remember, I started off by asking the question, what is the greatest threat to the church today? And I said that uh, a conflicted or divided church, right? Remember, Jesus tells us that there's nothing on heaven and earth that can actually prevail against the church. Right? But what can prevail against the church is internally when Christians kind of start tearing at one another. And as I've said before, and just not to over-repeat myself, but over the last couple of years, Christians have really been fighting one another on what I would call non-essentials. Right? We've kind of forgotten what we are supposed to be together with, and we've kind of been fighting each other on stuff that we didn't need to. So in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Remember, that word harmony is not just like, 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 like getting along, right? The word harmony used in the Greek is actively looking for uh, spots of weakness, spots of, of, of tension, and, and actively seeing that and coming alongside and repairing it. Remember, the word that Paul uses is more akin to a fishing net. Where there's, you know, look, if you're uh, with a fishing net, every time you throw it over, um, you know, the water, the salt, the fish, it kind of tears, you know, holes in it. So every time uh, a fisherman will have to repair the net afterwards. Well, that's the word that Paul uses for harmony. And so we look at this idea about what, what does divisions and foolishness look like, because that's what Paul really talks about. But then what does uh, harmony and what does wise look like? And again, I just went through the chapter and I took out the phrases or the idea, ideas behind it. But what we see here and what that really gives us is kind of a clear picture of what exactly Paul is actually looking for. And we wrapped up by looking at verse 30 and 31, says this, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom himself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. So what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to remove all the distractions. And again, there are so many distractions. There's so many reasons for us to hate other Christians or not like other Christians, or ridicule, or, or mock other Christians. And what Paul is saying, listen, set that aside and start thinking about what Christ would have of you. So that's what we talked about last week. Well, this morning, we're going to continue on in, in, into, uh, into chapter 2. But before we do that, there's a great book. And if you are a parent of a child, I would recommend you look up a guy named Tim Elmore. Tim Elmore is, in my opinion, one of my favorite authors in regards to adolescent and pre-adolescent psychology. And if you are a parent with a boy, he's got a book called Boys Adrift, which I think is just phenomenal. But one of my favorite books by Tim Elmore is a book called Artificial Maturity. And Artificial Maturity is a fantastic book because what Tim Elmore does is he kind of looks at Generation IY or Z and Millennials when they were a little bit younger, and he says, as we look at this generation, there's a couple of things that we can notice about them. So this is what he says in his book, Artificial Maturity. He says this, today, because information is so prevalent, our kids assume that they have experiential knowledge when they only have informational knowledge. Pause there. So obviously, Google is fantastic, 
right? And, and Google says, basically, you put in any question, it doesn't matter how dumb the question is, and Google will give you, I don't know, millions, at least hundreds of thousands of, of, of answers to that. And you can read those answers, but that's informational knowledge. You really haven't experienced or tested or practiced that knowledge. He goes on to say this, with an abundance of knowledge, their confidence can soar, but it's based on a virtual foundation. Without experience, it's easier for knowledge to produce judgmental attitudes, bullying, and arrogance. So here's what he's saying. Informational knowledge is a very superficial knowledge. And because it is so superficial, we can actually become insecure because we haven't really tested it. We really haven't probed the depth of it. So when people maybe have a different view, we respond in a way that is kind of immature. He says this, analysts say there is an increased sign that a lack of independence fuels stress, anxiety, and depression among young people. We haven't seen that at all, have we? Kids' early, uh, early lives today are too full of information and structure and too empty of innocence and the freedom to play and explore. But by adolescent, it's almost the opposite. It's, it's, the, it's though the experience is a flip-flop. Their lives are too full of freedom and too empty of accountability. So... He goes on to say this, for the most part, adults have failed to build true life skills in kids. We haven't helped them self-regulate and make decisions about concerns that matter. Students' busy schedules often aren't all that meaningful, and young people spiral downward into despair over relatively trivial issues. Their days are full of artificial activities with artificial consequences resulting in artificial maturity. The stress is real, but it is often over things that don't really matter, and it isn't building mature people. One of the things I, I kind of talk about a little bit, and when I was a youth pastor, for sure, this is something that I really thought about a lot, and oftentimes parents would come to me. There was even a phrase for young adults called failure to launch, right? The failure to launch phrase, as applied to young adults, was there was generations looking at this age and stage and going, well, when I was 22, when I was 24, I was at this stage of life. How come my son and my daughter is still living at home playing video games? Right? So it's kind of like, well, what do we do with that? And what I've tried to say to people is that we just need a, a bit of a, a longer runway so that they can have a bit more time because it takes a little bit more time to kind of figure out who they are. The other analogy I try to use is fruit. Uh, I would say that, you know, the young adults and, 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 and kids, they just need a little bit longer time to kind of ripen because they are, it, there's so many different competing ways. But the thing is ab about this, though, is that people recognize it. And oftentimes, youth and young adults, like the phrase adulting, right? It's, it's, it's this great phrase because, you know, you graduate from school or you're starting to, you know, like, you know, basically the first bill that most young adults or most people will have to experience is the cell phone bill. Right? It's like, oh, if I don't pay, they're going to cut my phone off. Or, oh, I have to kind of, it's like, this is, this is what adulting is. And, you know, for us who are older, it's like, no, this is just, this is just life, right? But it's the different ways of looking at it. As adults, we have done a poor job in getting this generation of kids ready for life. If they flounder, it is because we focus on preparing the path for the children instead of the children for the path. This is really important. What we have done is we've tried to remove all stress points from kids in their developmental stages. And because of that, what we've done is we've kind of made them unprepared when stress points do actually happen. So finally, he says this, and this is where we're kind of centered on this morning. 
artificial maturity is a result of two simultaneous realities in the 21st century. It can be summarized that kids are overexposed to information earlier than they are ready, and kids are underexposed to firsthand experiences later than they are ready. Right? So again, he's, he's really kind of creating this contrast, information versus experience, and we have to realize the two are separate. Ancient cultures had language for such circumstances. Two ancient Greek words for knowledge were gnosko and epigonosko. The first meant to be informed or to be aware. The second meant to fully understand through experience. It's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. We've unwittingly created a society where information is so prevalent that kids can be satisfied with gnosko and never go deeper. And uh, a great quote by Herbert Simon, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. So Tim Elmore, and again, I think he's, um, I really like his books. And again, if you're, a young, if you're a parent and you have young children, I really recommend you just devour anything he writes because it's very much focused on this generation and a lot of the struggles they're going to have. Oh, by the way, this is me in 2011 with Tim Elmore and we hugged and uh, I, I love this guy. So I actually, um, I read all his stuff and I, I was at the Catalyst Conference and he taught uh, a seminar. But the cool thing about him, and this is, this is how I know Tim Elmore is a great guy. He came off the stage and because we were in the front row because I was a total, uh, yeah, I'm a bit of a keener. He, starts, he just starts asking us, hey, so where are you from? We're from Canada. Oh. And he starts talking to us. And this is like right before he's about to go on and do his seminar. And he's talking with us and he's asking questions. Like this guy, is, he doesn't just write these books. He's really, really interested. So, of course, I had to take a picture with him because I'm that kind of guy. So the question we're going to ask is a question that Paul asks at the end of chapter one. But he kind of goes deeper in it. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, are you wise? Right? So, uh, sorry, maybe I, I, I kind of skipped that a little bit there. So, the, uh, okay, forget it. You know, the question is, are you wise? I think you remember that. It's three words, right? So here's the thing as I want to apply this to the church today, right? So when we apply this to the church, it says this. Um, uh, sorry, likewise, in the church today, we have people who have lots of information, some of it bad or even wrong, but very little experience. This leads Christians to be becoming insecure in their faith and responding immaturely to culture. Let me just unpack this for a second. Christians who attend church on Sunday mornings get a lot of information. If you're part of UCC, you're like, I get like three services in one sermon. Okay, fair enough. You get a lot of information. But what's interesting is, is if Sunday morning is your only Christian development, all you have is information. And that's actually probably the weakest link in a discipleship development process, right? So just think of it this way. If you like a sport, you can read all you want about a book about that sport, basketball, golf, what have you. But until you actually do it, you don't really know anything about it, right? You, you just don't know anything about it. With Christians, what we have done is we've created a church culture that gives you information but doesn't give you opportunities to actually practice. We have a lot of information but very, very little experience. So I got my slides out of order. The question we're going to ask is, are you wise? Now, what's interesting, when Paul asks this question of, of the church in Corinth, you need to understand Roman culture was almost... I don't want to say solely uh, focused on this, but they asked this a lot. So this guy named John M. Cooper wrote this great book called Pursuits of Wisdom, Six Ways of Life in Ancient Philosophy from Socrates to Platonus. And he says this, 
Over most of the 1,000 years of philosophy in ancient Greece and Rome, philosophy was assiduously studied in every generation by many ancient philosophers and their students as the best way to become good people and to live good human lives. So what's interesting about philosophy today is it is a very abstract way of thinking. I'm going to think deep thoughts. I'm going to think about Immanuel Kant or Nietzsche or, or Heidinger or whatever, right? Philosophy is very much a mental way. But see, the Greeks and the Romans in the ancient culture, philosophy is how they, they became better people. It is a way of becoming more um, a development. So when Paul is talking about wisdom and he's talking about this idea, he's using the ancient understanding as opposed to what we would say today. Ray Stedman on his commentary on chapter 2 which is where we're going to be sitting around today, says this. As we are looking at this passage from 1 Corinthians together, we're learning why it is that all of our accumulation of knowledge does not ever seem to help us handle life better. The reason, however, is not so much because of the lack of knowledge. We have lots of knowledge today, but because of lack of wisdom. True wisdom, and this is why the passage is so fantastically helpful to us. So what Ray Stedman kind of points out is just because you have more information, it doesn't mean your life is better, right? Like, if you think about it, high school, college, university, that's all you got was information. But when you graduate, it doesn't mean you actually knew what to do with it. And, and for some of you, it's even worse than that. But anyways, that's a whole different conversation, right? So information doesn't actually help you to live your life better. There is a missing component that no one ever seems to talk about. Before we talk about wisdom, I want to give you four things about wisdom that you need to keep in the back of your mind. The first thing is, you can't get enough knowledge to make you wise. All the books you read, all the Google, every YouTube, you know, or... or my wife has a phrase she says to me now, and I, I, it, it's, it's, it's kind of starting to kind of really frighten me. And she starts off the conversation with, I saw this thing on TikTok. And I'm like, oh, please, please don't, don't please don't, don't, don't complete that. But anyways, we have a lots of information. And so, but the thing is, though, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, it will not make you wise. Second thing, you don't get wisdom from imitation. Listen very carefully to this, okay? Just because you copy somebody else does not make you wise. Third thing, wisdom is not found in comfort. Oftentimes, what we, the, one of the realizations we're having in Western culture is we're too comfortable. And because we are so comfortable, we are not experiencing tr what true wisdom would look like. And we'll unpack that a little bit more later on. And finally, failure is usually the first step towards wisdom. I would think it, I've been thinking a lot about wisdom, and I think to myself, if I asked you, who's the wisest person you know? Who's the wisest person you know? And just have that person in your head right now. The question that I would ask you next is, how often has that person told you about things they've tried that they failed at? And, I, and, and my assumption is, is that a lot of the wisest people that we know have tried and failed in a lot of different areas. Because that's actually where wisdom kind of comes from. Failure is a part of wisdom. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up or get your electronic devices out. We're going to spend our entire time on chapter 2. Now remember I said to you, we're not trying to go chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. But this is a short chapter and it, I kind of need to talk about the whole thing. So we're going to go through the chapter kind of quickly. Well, as quick as I ever do it. And then uh, I'm going to summarize, kind of uh, highlight a couple of things. So chapter 2, verse 1 starts off this way. 
When I first came to you, brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. Now, as I've been repeating this, the word that Paul uses for wisdom is Sophia, right? And so, so Sophia means as the wisdom which belongs to men, skill, knowledge, and practice. So Paul isn't just saying that, it's, it's, that wisdom is a completely cognitive thinking discipline, but it's also practice. It's also methodology. So what Paul is saying is, I came to you, and I didn't bring the latest worship band with me. I didn't have the latest Hillsong album. Uh, well, you're not allowed to mention Hillsong anymore. But I didn't have, I didn't have all this stuff. What I had is, well, I'll, uh, I'll show you in a second what he had. But basically, he's trying to counter show. Because remember, in Roman culture, they knew how to throw festivals. They knew how to have pageants and pageantry. They knew this, right? That's what the entire Colosseums were about. But Paul, when he goes to a place to talk about Jesus, I, I, he's not using any of this stuff because he wants the authenticity of his message to be more important than how we do it. Verse 3 to 5 says this, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would... Um, I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Okay, so you see the, the, the two positions he's saying. I can come to you and I can speak in very persuasive, you know, TED Talk type language. But instead, I came to you in very plain, but look what he says there. I relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. Yet when I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. Now, this is kind of important because Paul uses this phrase, secret plan, a couple of times. Now, he's not saying that there's a, a secret way to read the Bible. What he is saying, though, is that he's trying to help the people realize that God's plan isn't just Jesus, right? God's plan is the whole of the Old Testament, you know, what happened in the upper room. All of this is part of God's plan. And if you don't understand what God's trying to do, you don't quite get it. So he says, I do speak about wisdom to mature believers, but really understand something. It's not the type of wisdom that the world understands. Now look at verse 7. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. Again, there's that phrase. His plan that was previously hidden, even though it made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. So, again, you see what he's saying here. That it's not so much a secret plan as like a hidden way of talking about it. Because unless you are pointed out what God is trying to do, you don't understand it. You don't quite get it. Now, verse 10 and 11. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thought except the person's own spirit. And no one can know a God's thoughts except God's own spirit. Again, Paul is coming back to what he said. I came to you in plain, with plain speech, but I came to you in that plainness so that you would rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is going to pop up, well, spoiler, uh, quite often in this chapter. In verse 13. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. Now, here's, here's where it gets, well, it's interesting, but here's where it gets really interesting. 
But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. The person with the spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Now, the word Paul uses for this idea of, of judgment is a Greek word, anachorino. And what it means is to investigate, examine, inquire into, scrutinize, sift, question, determine the excellence or defects of any person or thing. Now, before I kind of jump off to kind of unpack this a little bit more for you, what you really need to understand here is a person who is wise has wise judgment. A person who has lots of information does not have wise judgments. Okay? You understand what Paul is trying to do here? He's, he's laying this all out for us, but the very end here. See, oftentimes what's interesting about being a Christ follower is that you ever try to have, strike up a God conversation with a person, family member or coworker, or student, whatever, because you, you, you're, you're in some way trying to, to witness to them, trying to share Jesus with them. But have you ever noticed that sometimes their eyes just kind of glaze over and you can just tell that just they're not tracking? So fun story, last Sunday at, at, at the Princess, I'm just in the lobby, and, and of course, because we're the type of church where everyone shows late. Uh, the young man that was working there, uh, I mentioned him, hey, so you know that we're not here for the sermon. He was like, yeah, I know. I'm going to miss you guys. I'm like, oh, that's nice. He goes, yeah, I've been listening to your sermons. I'm like, uh-oh. I, I just, I thought you had headsets. I didn't actually think you are listening. He goes, yeah, you know, I've been listening to your sermons, and I've been kind of thinking a little bit about them. I'm like, oh, okay. So him and I went back and forth for about 10 minutes about God. He's not a believer, but he was asking me these really interesting questions, and of course, Whenever someone asks me about God, I, I, I try to first try to, try to get their framework. So I ask them a couple of questions, like, like do you believe in God? Or do you, he goes, like, I don't believe in God, but I think there's something. Like, okay, I can work with that. Let's start off that something. So we had this incredible 10-minute conversation. Now, the reason I'm saying that to you is because I would not have gone up to him and said, hey, you know, we're a church and, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Of course, I want to do that, but he's not, like, it doesn't seem like that conversation. But what was so fascinating to me is he brings it up himself. And we're going back and forth in this conversation. At the end of it, he goes, wow, you gave me some things to think about. And I said, that's all I want to do, is I want to give you some things to think about about that. Now, what Paul is saying here, and sometimes it's interesting for us as Christ followers, is that we want to have conversations with people, but they're not quite ready for those conversations. Right? Look what he says, right? But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. And, and he's not wrong, right? Remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked you that phrase. I asked, maybe it was last week, I can't remember, but I asked you the phrase, are you teachable, right? Are you teachable? And again, it's not something we think about because everyone says, oh, yeah, I'm teachable. No, you're not. You still wear the same clothes you wore, you know, from like, you know, 10 years ago. Not that you have to get new clothes or you're still, like, like basically to be teachable means to develop, to grow, right? That's what it is. But we are not as teachable as we think we are. We can, be, we can get very st stuck in our ways and not be and very immobile and not moving. And so what Paul is saying here is that sometimes the Holy Spirit reveals to us that somebody is ready for these conversations by the fact of, of what happens. Um, yesterday, I had the opportunity. So uh, Sarah's father passed away right before the pandemic. Like, like literally like a, like, like a couple of weeks before the pandemic uh, started. And so we didn't have a chance to have a memorial service or a funeral. So yesterday, uh, Sarah's family gathered together, and I had the opportunity to kind of lead a memorial service to her father. Now, Sarah's family um, are all uh, people who have uh, 
faith in their background like like decades ago. But nobody would be like uh, actively in church or like that kind of stuff. And again, that's that's kind of like what our culture is like. And so Sarah, you know, Sarah said to me like, you know, can you share do a sermon? I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, my family wants you to do a sermon. I'm like, okay, most people want me to shut up. So hey, I'm 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 good with that. So you know, okay. I say, but like, like, how do, how should I? She's like, ah, but, but, what she also knew, and what I also knew too, is that um, her father uh, was 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 placed in a hospice, and hospice care for those who are, are dying is just is is the best way because the the staff there were so wonderful, so sensitive, and it's it's so much more peaceful than like in a, in a hospital room. And so I had a chance to sit with Bob and talk about his faith, and and her her father Bob was a, always a spiritual person. Like, I said this in my sermon yesterday, that I would talk to uh, Bob throughout his life about God, and, and Bob was your classic hippie. I had this conversation with Bob about God, and his, his, the, the conversation would always end off with, right on, man. Like, like, like yeah, not a Maca- Ma- Matthew McConaughey way, like, but he was very much like, a, hey, yeah, right on, man. Right? He was always very spiritual. In this hospice, he knows his life is coming to an end. So the conversation got very different. And so I sat with him, and of course my wife as well too was reading scripture to him and asking about God. And, and towards the end, Bob was saying, you know, I was having this conversation with God and Jesus. All right, fair enough, right? But Bob said to me, hey, when, like, when you do my funeral service, I want you to do my funeral service, just, just share a little bit about God, you know, in that. I'm like, Ab- absolutely, done and done. But yesterday when I was sharing, one of the things I was trying to think about is, is what's a good starting point, right? So obviously at a time of, of mourning, people are more aware. Right? People are more aware. And without giving you my entire sermon, I, I started the sermon by asking this question. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And again, it's like one of those things like, I don't know, like, you know, walking, you know, Instagram. I don't know. What does it mean to be human, right? And I asked that question because what I've realized over the last couple of years especially is what actually makes us human is death. Because we're the only species that is aware of our impending demise. No other species on the planet is aware of that, whether it's mammals or whatever. They're not. Primates, nobody. Human beings are. But what's interesting about death is that death actually defines our lives because it helps us to understand the relevance of it, right? And, and so at a funeral time, um, when I was sharing about Bob and his story a little bit and, and, and sharing a little bit about that, I, I, I use a phrase about this, what it means to be human. Of course, my, my scripture... And it was kind of an odd sermon, which, again, for me, you know, that's par for the course. I use a passage from Ecclesiastes to start off with. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's how I started off a funeral. And, again, that's just me, and that's how I, that's how I roll, right? But, of course, I, I brought it back. Trust me, it, it, we ended off with Jesus. Don't, don't freak out, right? But the point was is that they were ready for this conversation. And, and they all came up to me afterwards and had, like, a private word with me about, about what I said. But what's interesting to me is like, yeah, like they were ready to hear from God. What Paul is saying here is that these spiritual conversations can only happen when people are in the proper focus. And so this is what Paul is saying about this idea of wisdom and, and, and how we need to proceed. Now, before I jump in, that's one, one last quote by Ray Stedman. And this one's really kind of cool about this chapter. He says this, what do smart, powerful people of the world do with Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the answer is they crucify him, don't they? They reject him, they deny him, they put him to death if they possibly can. This is what they did in the last century, and that is what they still do today. Why? Because they think he is crazy. 
No, sorry. No, why? Because they think he is crazy. No, even today, 2,000 years later, nobody thinks Jesus is crazy. Well, why do they resist him? The answer, of course, is not because they think he is crazy, but because they are afraid he is right. He threatens people. And this is what's interesting about what Paul is trying to say here. Right? Like, if you think about Christianity today, Christianity, as you talk to some people, is just one religion amongst many. What's, what's so offensive about Christianity? Well, Christianity in the proper context has the audacity to believe it's true. Christianity in the proper context has the audacity to believe that it is the only proper revelation of who God is. And that's what ticks people off in, in the Roman times. Right? Remember, Romans were polytheistic. They had... They have gods and deities for everybody. But the problem with, with Christians is they didn't play nicely. And by not playing nicely, they basically say, we're not worshiping the emperor as God. We're not accepting any other religion to be true. It's Christ and that's it. That ticks people off. Right? That's what ticks people off. So let me kind of summarize a little bit of what Paul's trying to do here and maybe show you something perhaps. Um, Paul uses the word wisdom six times in this chapter. And every, t- and, 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 and every usage almost, except for one, the wisdom that Paul uses, the phrasing that Paul uses, the, the words around it is that it's a negative thing, okay? Because the world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. And Christ followers, we just need to accept this more and more because we are trying to plead with the world to understand how we view the world or how we understand our values, and the world's like, no, right? Not so much. But now look at this. And so it's funny. Whenever I, whenever I do an a, a expository sermon, I do something called a word search. And a word search is I'm just curious about repetition of a word. And what was interesting is that I knew about the wisdom part of it. So then I just, you know, in your, in your browser, you hit Command F and you type in a word and it tells you, right? What was interesting is I put spirit in. Because, of course, Paul uses it a couple times. But I didn't really, I wasn't even tuning into it. But, of course, my page lights up. I'm like, oh. So here's what's interesting. Paul uses wisdom six times, but he uses spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, nine times, right? And it's almost as if Paul is trying to, as much as possible, contrast wisdom with the Holy Spirit. Because if you understand what the Holy Spirit will do, the Holy Spirit will not always use wisdom of the world, or oftentimes I mean close to the wisdom of the world, to convey what God wants. So six times he talks about wisdom. Of the six times, five times are negative. Nine times, Paul uses the word Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to show you something. How did Paul say he went to the, first, uh, to the church in Corinth to engage with them? Now, before I use a lot of the crazy animation, let me just show you something here. This way, I kind of, I, what I did is I took all the verses, I wrote them on a page, and I kind of began to study them. saying, okay, what is Paul showing us here? Okay, what is Paul showing us here? Now, here comes the crazy animation. I want to emphasize a couple of things here, right? So Paul starts off at the very beginning saying what? What is our starting point when it comes to us engaging with the world, engaging with culture? I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I've said this before. This is no shock to anybody. But the church today is, is positioned, is created, so that if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we're, still, we're okay with it. Everything in church goes exactly the same, even if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. Why? Because we just don't need the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I relied only on the Holy Spirit. Now, watch this now. But the second part, right, is the learning. What is it? Look at the words he uses to talk about the Holy Spirit. Reveals, searches, thoughts. How do you know as a Christ follower to engage with this world? The Spirit has to teach you. 
the Spirit has to teach you. But now, remember the word experience? Remember I talked about the difference between knowledge and experience? And the reason I went through the whole maturity thing and the difference between knowledge and experience, because um, Paul is now going to center in on it. The word he uses for know in verse 12 is the exact word that uh, Tim Elmore talks about. And the, it's, a, it's a briefer word here, I don't, but it's the idea of experience, right? It's not just to know, right? I can ask you, you know, about theological stuff. I can ask you about scripture. I can ask you, and again, not that you always get it right, but you'll be able to tell me. But the thing I need to ask you is, how much of God's presence have you actually experienced? How much of God's knowledge have you actually experienced? Because I'm telling you right now, what is going to separate the postmodern Christian from the cultural Christian is not about knowledge, but it's experience. As a pastor, so often people come to me and say, well, you know, I was talking to somebody, he asked me a question, I didn't know the answer. Or, I don't really want to share because I don't know if they're going to ask me a question that I'm not going to be able to answer. The assumption is, knowledge is going to convince somebody about God. And I would just say to you, that the reason why the Bible, especially in, 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 in the book of Revelations, is they overcame the enemy by their testimony. Because a testimony is not about knowledge, it's about experience. Experience is what is going to transform knowledge into maturity. Now, look, look, look what he goes on to say. Then we go to the witness part, right? So we start off with the witness at the beginning, but Paul says, no, no, you've got to go through this first to witness, right? We speak words given to us by the Spirit using the Spirit's word to explain spiritual truths. And finally, the audience. Who is the audience in here? Those who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God. Those who are spiritual can't understand what the Spirit means. Now, the important part is this. Corinth, right? It's Corinth. So what's interesting here is what's Paul saying here? What's this, what's this trajectory? In our daily lives, the authenticity of our faith is tested. We wish to engage to represent the king and the kingdom, but our culture is becoming increasingly hostile. The temptation becomes to modify or to assimilate to the culture, to make the message of the Christ and the cross less offensive to culture. See, as a Christ follower, there's lots of phobic terms that are applied to us. And as we get through the book of Corinthians, you're going to see this a lot more. Spoiler alert. But what's interesting is, and as Christ followers, like I don't want people to think I'm any kind of phobic for anything, but likewise, I don't want people to think that I'm also willing to modify who Jesus is and what the orthodoxy of Scripture for culture. I said this before. I say it again. We have now moved as Christians to the very fringes of culture. We are on the very edges now. And because we're on the very edges, culture is definitely pivoting into a different direction. Now, as I said to you before, and I'll say to you again, and this is going to become even more sensitive as you go through the book of, of, of 1 Corinthians, I am not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm not here to tell you how to go about and um, what to believe. My job as your pastor, if I am indeed your pastor, is to help you to understand the Bible. And from there, it's up to you to decide whether you want to follow that or not. That's it. So what I really want you to so see and understand here is you have to make the decision. And as Christians, it is so easy for us, it is very tempting for us, and as pastors, it's even more tempting. How do we talk about Jesus in a way that's not offensive? There was a, there was a uh, back in the late 80s, there was a movement called Seeker Sensitive. And this whole idea of Seeker Sensitive churches, and again, it got a bad rap, and, and, and it got a bad rap by the guy who started it, who no longer is 
anyways, that's a different conversation. But the point simply is, is that Secret Sense was, it, the idea was, initially was, is how do we convey the gospel to people who don't know anything about Christianity? And I think that's a great idea. But what took place then after, after it kind of kept going is that how do we dumb it down? How do we, how do we kind of make it so that, you know, we don't use so much scripture, uh, so much. I was talking to somebody and they told me about a church they visited where, they, where the, the, the sermon didn't even have any, any, any Bible verses in it or didn't have any scripture in it, right? It's, it's tempting as a pastor and churches will do this. How do we modify it so that we just don't want to offend people? And please understand, I don't want to offend people. But I also don't want to kind of offend God in regards to how I'm going to convey what he's saying. So, verse 16, Rome's done here. Paul wraps up this way. Four, who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So, I asked you a question at the beginning. Are you wise? Let me give you a formula for wisdom. Okay? Wis- wisdom is knowledge plus practice equals wisdom. But I would say to you that it's not just practice in the sense of like doing things over and over again, but Paul really kind of gives us this by the Holy Spirit. If you want to ask, are you wise as a Christian? We often choose a first category of knowledge. We, like, hmm. You can memorize all the Bible verses you want, and I think it's a great discipline. But unless you actually start experiencing and actually practicing in the spirit these things you learn or memorize, it doesn't mean anything. So, again, look what Paul does here, right? He gives us the context for this throughout the chapter. He, t- he contrasts the idea of knowledge, and he contrasts the idea of, of, of practice. But I left out particularly verse 2, and this is where we're going to close. I left out verse 2 because verse 2 is the money verse of this entire chapter. Because Paul says something that I've been thinking about that's bugging me as a pastor all week long. Look what verse 2 says. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I stopped and I looked at that. That's why I left it out of my my things. I don't want to give away the, uh, the twist ending. But look what Paul says. I forget, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ. That to me as a pastor is horrifying. Because it, what it does for us, what it says to us, is what is the most important thing you convey about who God is and what God is? It's not your wise words, it's not your pervasive speech, speech it's, 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 it's Jesus. How does Paul confront the most corrupt city, culture, in the Roman Empire? We've already talked about this in Corinth, right? He doesn't. He leans into the Holy Spirit. He forgets everything except Christ. The distinction is important. This is where it's kind of really kind of key here. We can either learn culture, methodology, and values, or we can learn Jesus. View Christ through culture or view culture through Christ. Understand what I'm saying here. So I had this really great conversation with a pastor on uh, Tuesday. I want to give you the exact date because... I don't want people to think I'm making this conversation up because pastors always make up stories because it's like, it sounds really great. So I was talking to this pastor on Tuesday, and he said to me, how do I take my church and, and, and make it into a missional church? I said, okay, tell me about your church. He says, our church would be middle to upper class, several hundred people, 
and highly attractional. I said, okay, unpack to me what that means. He says, well, a lot of our resources go towards our Sunday morning uh, performance. I said, okay. So then I started asking him some questions. How, what's your budget like? Oh, you know, we, we have, it's good. But again, it's, 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 it's geared towards Sunday morning. I said, okay. I say, what's your, what's your volunteer ratio? This is always one that's kind of key. He says about 17 to 21% of the people actually volunteer and everybody else is that. I said, okay, great. I said, now what exactly is it you want your church to do? He goes, well, there's a complex right behind where we are, right, that, uh, that you know, has vulnerable, a vulnerable population. He says, you know, and, and where we are living, there are pockets all over the city that, you know, people aren't really at where there are, you know, homeless population, addicts, all that kind of stuff. He says, well, we need to reach them. I said, well, of course. He goes, so how do I take my attractional church and make it missional? And I said to him, you don't. He goes, what? I said, you can't. I said, if you try to transform what you're trying to do, and again, everything you're saying is absolutely great, and I love it, but you are going to decimate your church. You are going to destroy your church because it is built upon entertaining cultural Christians. He kind of felt a little dejected. I said, but there is some good news. He goes, what? I said, your budget right now, and I, I, I know the percentage you said to me, right, because there's staffing, there's uh, building, but, you know, it, I think he said about 40% of it goes to Sunday morning. And in, in, a, in a multi-million dollar budget, that's, that's a lot of money. I said, here's what you need to do. You need to start cutting your budget back and taking that, that percentage and sort of applying it to the projects you're talking about. He says, so there's a complex right behind you. Yes. And it's made up of people who are vulnerable. And, and you know, yeah, yeah. Great. Next year, take 10% of your attractional budget and set aside for that. I said, incrementally start moving towards those things. He said, oh, okay. I said, secondly, whatever commitment you make to this, pro this place you're, you're looking at, make it a five-year commitment. See, Christians are always so unwise. We think, okay, we're going to go into this area. We're going to share the gospel. And then some people are going to fall to their knees and love Jesus, right? Wouldn't you love that, right? But really... In any kind of experience, you just realize that it takes two years to earn people's trust. It just does. So I said, just make a five-year commitment. And every year, carve back 10% more towards that. I said, you're not going to take an att attractional model and make it missional overnight. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what sermons. You, you know what's funny? You could tell people from the pulpit, you need to get up there and, 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 and you know, brr. it doesn't matter. You know what I love about attractional churches? They love this phrase, no perfect people allowed. But except for everything is perfect. Everything's perfect. Everyone on the stage is perfect. Out of the music is perfect. Everything is perfect. I said, how many of the people who are in this place that you want to reach would feel comfortable coming to your church on Sunday morning? He goes, well, I said, see, you, you, you got to change it. I said, you know what would be really kind of cool? If you sold your building and bought three or four smaller buildings in different parts of the city where you want to reach. Oh, I couldn't do that. I know you can't. I'm just saying it'd be cool. Right? And again, I think I always think of Francis Chan with how, what he did with his church and how he completely blew it up in order to kind of get become more missional in San Francisco. And again, that's a different conversation. The point simply is this. As Christians, as churches, as leaders, as all of us who, who again, I believe that most people here want to be authentic disciples of Jesus. And I use the word disciples intentionally. Right? Not converts, not cultural. Disciples, which are teachable, humble, growing, absolutely making mistakes. 
right? But wanting to become wise, which is knowledge and, and, and practice. But as I said to you, and I'll continue to say to you, we have to forget everything except Jesus. Right? And again, we can view Jesus through culture, or we can view culture through Jesus. And I would say it's the latter better than the former. Because if we try to assimilate culture, trying to convince culture that we're right, we're not going to do that. And increasingly, that's, that's ha- not happening anymore. We are not convincing culture that we are right. We're not convincing culture that our, the, that our way of living is, 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 is right. We are not. But I think if we take the practice and the experience of what the Spirit wants to do, I think we can create pockets of resistance. There's a phrase the Bible uses, it's kind of interesting. It, it, the Bible uses a phrase towards the church and again in the future as a remnant. Remnant's a funny phrase because what remnant means is not a lot of them there, but there's still some. I think the, the church, postmodern, going forward, is not the dominant, it is the remnant. It is not the center, it is the fringe. And I think we as Christ followers need to really readjust how we engage in culture to a way that is more authentic, more true to what the Bible would say. So are, uh, are you wise? Knowledge plus, ex- plus practice with the Spirit is what makes us wise. And we look for opportunities, we look for those God moments where the Spirit has just kind of reveals us as a conversation ready to have and that's what we kind of capitalize on. And that's how we do it. This is what Paul is trying to say to us, right? Do we forget Jesus or do we forget culture? And again, I would say to you, we forget everything except Jesus. And again, the reason why this kind of bugged me as a pastor, there's so many things, there are so many temptations for us to kind of embrace. There's so many ways for us to kind of, oh, this is what we need to do. I think of, uh, I think of, Mary in front of Jesus' feet, right? Martha comes out like, hey, Jesus, send her to the kitchen to help me prepare the food for your loser disciples that just showed up, right? Jesus is like, no, no, she's chosen the better thing. I think that's what we need to do is just sit at Christ's feet, remember everything, remember Jesus and forget everything else. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, for wisdom. And wisdom is not gained through knowledge, but is gained through experience. It's gained through spiritual, Holy Spirit practice. Lord, I pray for those who are here or will be watching on YouTube at a later time. Jesus, I ask that you would make us wise. Make us mature, but not wise as the world would say it. Instead, Lord, make us wise by the Holy Spirit's teaching. Help us to discern and see moments where you are opening conversations with those around us. Help us to see and experience what your word would teach us. Lord, please don't make us smarter than God but instead make us submissive and teachable to the Spirit so that we can learn and grow and mature. Make us disciples of Christ who are constantly willing to move, to grow, and to learn what it means to be disciples of Jesus in a culture that is increasingly hostile to who Jesus is. Lord, let us represent you with authenticity, vulnerability, but also truth. And Holy Spirit, as we have spent a lot of time thinking about you, as we've been spending a lot of time being even anointed so that we'd be used by you, Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak to us, you would guide us and lead us in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.